Good morning, brothers and sisters. It's good to be with you again as we continue our studies in the Gospel of Luke. I am Chris Anderson, the teacher of Class A40, and it's my privilege to bring you this week's Explore the Bible lesson from Chapter 24 of Luke with the Road to Emmaus story. But first, let's open our time together with just a word of prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we are so privileged to be able to open up your scriptures today and to learn from your teaching, to see how your early believers behaved and act, and how we can take lessons from the Word of God and apply them to our lives. We just ask during this time today that you uh, be with us and open our eyes and open our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, before we step out onto the road to Emmaus, we need to remind ourselves it is still early on the first Easter morning. The first group of visitors to Jesus' tomb were the women carrying the spices to complete the preparations for the Lord's body, and they have returned with a fantastic story about an empty tomb and angels. Peter and John have also returned after confirming the tomb's emptiness, but no one knows where Jesus is. Even if we don't know where Jesus is, though, we can engage our imaginations about how he is. Can you imagine how Jesus might have felt this morning? Now that his agony in Gethsemane was over, the beatings and abuse were over, and the horrible crucifixion was now behind him, and that now he is at the place where everything his Father sent him to do had been accomplished. In John 17, verses 3 to 5, there's a great statement in the high priestly prayer that speaks to Christ's completed mission. Jesus says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth by accomplishing the work which you have given me to do. And now you, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world began. Now I think Jesus was sharing in the great joy in heaven that morning. And let's also remember that Jesus began resurrection morning with an amazing new resurrection body. So with that, to get ourselves back into the context of where we are in the book of Luke, let's now turn our attention to the road to Emmaus story by reading chapter 24 of Luke, and beginning at verses 13, and I'll stop for a moment at verse 21, and I'll be reading today from the New American Standard Version. And behold, on that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they came to a stop, looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you possibly the only one living near Jerusalem who does not know about the things that happened here in these days? And Jesus said to him, What sort of things? And they said to him, Those about Jesus the Nazarene, who proved to be a prophet, mighty in deed and word, in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and crucified him. And we were hoping that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. 
Indeed, besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Now, only in Luke's Gospel do we find the story on the road to Emmaus. It takes place on the day of Jesus' resurrection as two disciples, Cleopas and another one who is not named, travel from Jerusalem to the city of Emmaus, perhaps on their way home from the Passover celebration. The location of Emmaus is no longer known, but Luke tells us it was about seven miles from Jerusalem, and the two travelers are described as, quote, two of them, and this is referring to the larger group of Jesus' followers and disciples described earlier in verses 9 and 10 of this same chapter. This group included the remaining 11 apostles, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and, quote, all the others, close quote. Some people have speculated whether the disciple accompanying Cleopas was his wife or another male disciple. Unfortunately, we don't really know much about the second disciple and whether he was a man or not. If you look down to verse 25 in your Bible, your translation might read, You foolish men. But the Greek for this phrase simply reads, You foolish, and stops. So our English versions often add the word persons or the word ones to make the text read better for our English eyes. But there really is no way we can be certain of the second disciple's identity. Now these two disciples are deeply engaged in discussing the events of the past few days. Clearly they are trying to make sense of everything that has just happened. And suddenly a stranger comes upon them on the road. The stranger has heard some of what Cleopas and the other disciple were discussing, and he asks them about it, apparently sounding like someone who has been hiding under a rock. Now let's listen again to the first words of Cleopas and the other disciple. We were talking about Jesus the Nazarene, who proved to be a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Now, what is the problem in what they tell Jesus? They show some major misunderstandings about him. Yes, Jesus was a prophet, but so much more. And they seriously misunderstood Jesus' mission. So while they think this ignorant stranger is clueless about the goings-on in Jerusalem, it's really the two disciples who need to be clued in. And the disciples, as well as most everybody else, misunderstood what Jesus came to do. Several scriptures show us that their hope was in a political savior, a king who would take the throne of David, throw out the Roman occupiers, and institute a new golden age in Israel. And do you remember on Palm Sunday what the crowd was shouting on the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem? They said, Blessed is the King, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Here are a few other examples, most from the Gospels, uh, that that highlight this. In, In Mark chapter 9, verses 31 and 32, Jesus was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be handed over to men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement. And then in Luke 19, verse 11, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. 
And then in Matthew 20, verse 21, James, John, and their mother come to Jesus. And he said to her, What do you desire? She said to him, Say that in your kingdom these two sons of mine shall sit, one at your right and one at your left. And then, not to leave out John's gospel, uh, he quotes uh, Old Testament prophecy and begins, Do not fear, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him. And finally, one of the most amazing things, I think, in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, on the very morning that Jesus is ascending back to heaven, it reads, So when they had come together, they began asking Jesus, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? So there was a great deal of misunderstanding, even amongst his closest disciples, of what Jesus really came to do. And on this resurrection morning, all of them still have this misunderstanding about the prophecies about his resurrection. And because of their lack of understanding, we can see that the road to Emmaus can also serve as a metaphor of understanding. At the beginning of this symbolic road, there would be a complete ignorance and cluelessness. However, the disciples had learned a great deal from their years with Jesus, so they're not ignorant. They have a great deal of knowledge about Jesus, but also a few but profound misunderstandings, including an incomplete and inaccurate interpretation of Jesus' teaching about his death, his resurrection, and his primary mission. But there is good news, because at the end of this road will be the destination of certainty in knowing what is true. As Jesus' disciples progress down this road of understanding, we see them traveling from misunderstanding to confusion at the arrest of Jesus and then his trial and crucifixion. The world has been turned upside down and nothing makes any sense. So they begin to search for answers. Next we see, particularly in the case of Cleopas and the other disciple, that they have moved farther down the road from confusion to the place of questioning and processing trying to make sense of what had just happened to their master. And it is at this point that a stranger suddenly joins the duo as together they come to the part of the road that we'll call illumination. It's illuminated by the light of the world, and the unrecognized Jesus guides them towards enlightenment. When they arrive at Emmaus this day, we may see that they have not quite yet reached the final destination of certainty as to what is true, but we do have confidence that they are at the doorstep of a great epiphany. And this brings us to our first application from this passage. Are you and I humble enough to know there are things about God and about the Bible's message that we have yet to learn? Now back to our text, where the not-so-mysterious stranger approaches Cleopas and the other disciple. In verse 15, he overhears them in their conversation, and Luke shows us that the two are in the questioning and reasoning process by saying they were, quote, talking and, quote, discussing. Now, the Greek meaning of the word talking is simply conversing or having a conversation, but it is the second word that gives us more insight. The Greek here for discussing means to seek, to inquire with another, to deliberate, to debate, and to reason. 
So the picture here is that the two disciples are deeply engrossed rethinking and reevaluating things together, taking what they thought they knew and trying to arrive at a place where it would make sense in the light of Jesus' death and the now empty tomb. And verse 16 also contains a phrase we need to understand where the text reads that the two disciples are prevented or, quote, kept from recognizing him. The meaning of the Greek here is to hinder or repress. And I am certainly no grammarian or Greek expert, but the New Testament scholar Robert Stein states that these words are, and I'm quoting here, in the divine passive, implying that their inability to recognize Jesus was because the Lord had prevented it. So Jesus asks his fellow travelers for specific details about their discussion by asking what things. And there's two plausible reasons why Jesus would ask this. First, we know that Jesus knew about their confusion and struggles, and he also knew why they were confused. So his intent may have been not to learn about their thinking, but rather to draw them out to describe their misunderstandings, their confusion, and their disappointment, and use that as a launching pad from which Jesus would take them to a higher understanding of the meaning of his life and death and resurrection. Secondly, Luke deliberately chose this episode to include, as he writes in chapter 1 of his gospel, in his orderly account for the most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Theophilus now sees Jesus as he reads the Gospel of Luke, opening up the Old Testament scriptures to Cleopas and the other disciple to show them that he is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies and promises. Now, these are some of the same things that Theophilus and the new churches everywhere have, at the time of Luke's writing, already been taught. And Luke's description of this actual event and its eyewitnesses will help Theophilus to know that these things, to know these things with certainty. So let's now continue at verse 22. But also some women among us left us bewildered. When they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came, saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And so some of those who are with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the woman had said, but him they did not see. Well, let's expand a little on the disciples' misunderstanding about Jesus and his mission. And Cleopas and the other disciples here are seen to be as bewildered and in confusion about the woman's discovery of an empty tomb. The word bewildered means astonished or amazed, and also uh, being beside oneself. Now, we've all heard the malicious claims that attempt to explain the empty tomb that someone stole Jesus' body away during the night. And people have been spreading that rumor for centuries. But what is there in the words of the women in verse 23 that would tell us that something very much out of the ordinary was going on? Well, they saw a vision of angels. But instead of everyone shouting hallelujah, the men seem to be dismissive of the women's wild story. 
Or, as an alternative, perhaps they are so, quote, beside themselves in confusion and doubt and maybe even unbelief that they just aren't ready to believe that the woman's story is true. Perhaps we might be tempted to say that the men held to the motto of trust but verify. But we can't do that because Luke makes it very clear in verse 11 that they did not believe the women. So off they ran to see for themselves. And here we again can notice how Luke reminds his readers that his gospel is based on eyewitness accounts. Well, Cleopas and his friend later left this larger group of disciples and headed back to Emmaus. And there is where they meet the unrecognized Jesus on the Emmaus road. But they then give away their frame of mind. They say that Peter and John confirmed that the tomb was empty, but they didn't see him. So even though the emptiness of the tomb had been confirmed by Peter and John, there was still no evidence of what happened to Jesus' body. And verse 24 also seems to paint a picture of these two disciples whose hope is fading. However, this story highlights at this section of it two of the most important facts of the resurrection day. Number one, the tomb of Jesus was confirmed by multiple eyewitnesses to be really empty. And number two, as we are allowed to peek behind a curtain, Cleopas and the other disciple are now actually walking with Jesus and will, among with many others, shortly see him. In fact, Cleopas and the second disciple presented here as near nobodies will actually see Jesus today a second time when they get back to Jerusalem. Okay, now this is really important, so I'll try and make this really clear for us. This story about Cleopas and the other disciple, along with the stories of the other people who met with the resurrected Jesus, are of great help in explaining how Jesus' followers, so disillusioned and confused by Jesus' arrest and his death and his burial, were then transformed into dynamically effective evangelists at Pentecost, who, empowered by the Holy Spirit, drove the incredible growth of the first century church. The empty tomb, plus Jesus' meeting with hundreds of his followers, leads to one of the most abiding and strongest arguments for the reality or the certainty of the resurrection. In his book, Surprised by Hope, N.T. Wright puts it this way, An empty tomb by itself proves almost nothing. All sorts of explanations could have been offered and would have been had not the empty tomb been accompanied by sightings of and meetings with Jesus himself, a Jesus who was strangely changed, more strangely than they were able to fully describe. Both the meetings and the empty tomb are therefore necessary if we are to explain the rise of the belief and the writing of the stories as we have them. Neither by itself was sufficient. Put them together, though, and they provide a complete and coherent explanation for the rise of the early Christian belief. Now, David Baggett wrote in his book, Did the Resurrection Happen? Quote, the facts on which virtually all critical scholars are agreed are neatly explained, every one of them. Jesus really died and was buried, causing the disciples to despair and lose hope. Then something sufficiently monumental happened, as it must have, to transform them into bold proclaimers of his resurrection. 
This message became their central affirmation, proclaimed in the very city in which Jesus had shortly before been killed. Their enemies can't disprove the resurrection, and many people claim to have seen the risen Jesus, even Jesus' own brother, changing him from skeptic to church leader. The church grows, Sunday becomes the new day of worship, and a few years later, Paul too claims to see the post-ascension risen Jesus, eventually going to Jerusalem and meeting with earlier eyewitnesses and confirming that the message he and they were preaching were the same. Close quote. Okay, well, let's now return to the text at verse 25. And then Jesus said to them, You foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to come into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things written about himself in all the scriptures. We saw how Cleopas and the other disciple thought the stranger on the road was incredibly uninformed. But who really were the ignorant ones here? Jesus diagnoses the disciples' problems. He calls them foolish and slow of heart to believe. The Greek word that Luke uses here for foolish can mean inconsiderate or unintelligent or unwise, and slow means slow of understanding, but also heart should be understood as not simply our emotions, but our entire inner being, the seat of our personhood. And this brings to my mind the related symbolism of dull ears and dim eyes. And something interesting to note in the text is the Greek word in verse 27 and verse 32 for explained or interpreted when Jesus explained the scriptures to the disciples. This Greek word also means opened, as in giving understanding to what the scripture said. And Luke uses this word again in verse 20 for the opening of the disciples' eyes. It is also used elsewhere for opening the heart or opening the mind. And Luke will use this same word again in Acts 7.56 when Stephen sees the heavens opened before him. Now, rather than listening to me, how would you like to hear Jesus explain and open up the scriptures? Now, that must have been the most amazing experience, and we see that it is one that it made Cleopas and his friends' hearts burn within them. Now, last week, I provided my class with a description of Old Testament prophecies that only dealt with the crucifixion. And there were over 40 of those, coming from Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, the Psalms, Isaiah, Amos, and Zechariah. Can you imagine how long it would take to speak about all the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah? I think it's a good thing they had a long ways to go to Emmaus, and I'm guessing they walked pretty slow. Now, I earlier mentioned that the disciples and most other people did not really understand the kind of Messiah that Jesus was, ex expecting a triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, to be followed by a coronation of the new Davidic king, to be followed by a great military defeat of Rome and the beginning of a new golden age in Israel. But contrary to expectation, Jesus was interpreting the Old Testament for Cleopas and the other disciple to illuminate the Messiah as the suffering servant and the perfect Lamb of God, as well as giving them a correct understanding of the Messiah's mission here on earth. It probably isn't possible to imagine how amazing it would have been to hear the Son of God, the Logos himself, 
interpret the scriptures for you and me, but it does remind us today that we also need God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit to guide us in understanding God's word. Now, all through the Old Testament scriptures, beginning in Genesis 3, verse 15, God has been telling us that mankind needs a Savior, and there is a plan of salvation that was foretold through numerous prophecies and recurring metaphors and symbols, such as the meanings underlying the annual Feast of Passover and the Lamb of God that would be slain for the forgiveness of sins. Perhaps sometime in the past, we too were spiritually slow and dim and dull, but we can still be ready to help others who may struggle to answer Jesus' question, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to come into his glory? The answer is yes. The perfect Lamb of God had to die, for without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin. Now, to tell the truth, I find the hard part of answering Jesus' question involves the word necessary. We know that Jesus provided an answer in Gethsemane when the Father was apparently silent to Jesus' prayer, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. But why was this the only way? People have asked before, couldn't the omnipotent God the Father have made another way to forgive the sins of mankind without the shedding of blood? And what about us? Are each of us able to answer these questions about the atonement for anyone who has questions or just needs to hear about it? Well, I think first we must begin with a recognition that all of redemptive history is under the sovereign will and control of God, even the confusing parts. And Jesus' death and resurrection was the most significant part of God's eternal plan for mankind. We can also discuss many scripture passages that describe parts of the plan of salvation. For today, though, rather than read several verses that you're all very familiar with, I have no doubt, let me share a good four-part summary of the atonement consisting of mankind's four spiritual needs and how Jesus meets each one. This summary is taken from Wayne Grudem's book on systematic theology. Let me briefly go through the four needs that we have, and our four basic spiritual needs arise from the fact we deserve to die as a penalty for sin. Number two, we deserve to bear God's wrath against sin. The third one is we are separated from God because of our sins. And the fourth one is we are in bondage to sin. So now we want to look at what the scriptures say about how does Christ meet each one of these needs. So the first one, we deserve to die as a penalty of our sin. Christ meets this need through his sacrifice. Hebrews 9.26 says, He has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The second one, we deserve to bear God's wrath against sin. How does Christ meet that one? Well, it's through his propitiation. In other words, to remove us from the wrath of God. 1 John 4.10 tells us, In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Number three, we are separated from God by our sins. So how does Christ fix this problem? Well, he does it through his reconciliation, the restoration of fellowship with God. 
2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19 says, God through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. And fourthly, we are in bondage to sin. So how does Christ meet that need, that problem? Through his redemption. Mark 10, 45. For the Son of Man also came not only to be, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So in short, Christ provides the solution to each of our four basic spiritual problems through his sacrifice, his propitiation, his reconciliation, and his redemption. For these reasons, there is a divine necessity for God's purposes to be fulfilled through the suffering and the death, as well as the resurrection of Jesus. And so we come to our second application for today. Are we each, as Peter said it, always ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give account for the hope that is in you? There is good news when we encounter questions or doubts, and we will see in our final verses for today that Jesus is always ready to help illuminate our minds and hearts, our entire inner beings with the light of his truth. So let's conclude today with verses 28 to 33. And they approached the village where they were going, and Jesus gave the impression that he was going farther. And so they strongly urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is getting towards evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And it came about, when he had reclined at the table with them, that he took the bread and blessed it, and he broke it and began giving it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, Were our hearts not burning within us when he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they got up at that very hour and returned to Jerusalem. In verse 28, we begin to see that Jesus' tutorial was very impactful because the two disciples urged Jesus to stay with them at Emmaus. This Greek word translated into English as urged is much stronger. It means to force, to constrain, to press with urgent entreaties. So this was way more than a polite and hospitable invitation. Jesus' teaching had a huge impact on the two disciples, and they had an intense desire to keep hearing what Jesus had to say. So the still incognito Jesus comes into the house, and they soon sit down for a meal. Jesus blesses and breaks the bread, and it is at this very moment that Jesus allows the two disciples to recognize him, as indicated again by the use of the divine passive form of the word for open, which tells us that Jesus caused it. At this point, Jesus disappeared, but he will shortly meet again with Cleopas and the other disciple when they return hastily back to Jerusalem and gather again with a larger group of disciples. Well, in conclusion, let's close with a summary of our two earlier applications in this passage and add a third. The first one was, be humble enough to know there are things about God and about the Bible's message that we still have yet to learn. The second application was always be ready to explain why Jesus came and had to die to save sinners. And our final and new application 
is if we are ever in confusion or doubt about the truth of the gospel, or if we find the hope of our faith fading away, where do we go for help? Well, we should go straight to the scriptures and ask the Holy Spirit to open and illuminate the the scriptures to us and make our hearts burn again within us. So please join with me as we close in prayer today. Our dear Lord Jesus, our resurrected Savior and Lord, we thank you for leaving behind your testimonies and your witness and your examples of all the great things you did and the evidence of your divinity and your power to take away sin. And we thank you for the powerful message in the story we've read today. I pray that um, we would just hold on to it harder and tighter and just be convinced to the limits of our being and be certain of the truth of your death and resurrection. And because of that, we can know that we are saved. Lord, thank you for everyone that listens here today. Thank you for your scriptures that you have made available to us. And we ask that your Holy Spirit walk with us this week and continue to speak to us about the meanings of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.